Baselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida, and Marion, Massachusetts. Hosted by Ed Chenefy, this is the podcast that researches and investigates the club management and facility side of our business. Hello, and thank you for listening to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Chenefy, I'm your host, and this week, Butch Buckholtz joins the podcast, Butch is really the godfather and founder of the modern-day pro tennis tour. He had a vision in the 1960s, a vision he held onto and he just wouldn't let go of. And in 1968, when Wimbledon allowed the traveling professional players to play in the austere tournament, the open era was ushered in. And Butch, well, he was right there in the middle of it all. As a junior career Grand Slam winner, having won as a junior the four slams long before they were open to pros in the main draw, Butch has seen it all, from traveling the world by boat and by bus. He says to pros these days, well, they're lucky to be flying in those G5s. Butch single-handedly started what is now known as the Miami Open. He was intent on having a player's championship for and about the players, and he started his dream tournament actually in Delray Beach, Florida. He garnered Lipton as his first main sponsor. The Lipton moved southward over the next couple of years, and after battling the zoning laws and neighbors on Key Biscayne, he drew up the plans for what some of the players on tour called the best arena ever. Butch was responsible for starting the general pension fund for the ATP tour players, and his passion and love for the game show through to this day. Even though he hasn't been able to hit a ball in the past three years, he's still an avid golfer. His best memory? Perhaps the day the chairman of the All England Lawn Tennis Club welcomed the pros back. They had just played an exhibition in August of 1967, and they packed center court there in West London, and they were welcomed back to play in Wimbledon, June 1968. And that started what we now know as the Modern Day Tour. One of the greatest players of all time, and to all intents and purposes, the founder of the men's and women's professional tours, here's Butch. Well, thank you for joining the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Shanifi, I'm your host, and this week we have a grand slam of the boys winners four championships um butch buckholtz welcome to uh the podcast and thanks for being here Ed, i'm looking forward to it it should be fun i am too and i i mentioned the boys grand slam because you won the the boys tournaments at the australian the wimbledon um the french and then at, at kalamazoo in the united states the 18s uh take us back those to those days with the boys tournaments well, you know, I, I was fortunate that um, I guess my resume was, was strong enough that I could um, get into um, the Junior Wimbledon and the French and, and the USTA had an agreement with the Australian Association, the French and, and Wimbledon to take the top uh, player from each of those countries. So uh, I qualified for that. And um, my first one was at the, the French and then Wimbledon, then Kalamazoo, and then um, uh, Australia. But it wasn't a calendar year because Australia was, was actually in 50, uh, January 59. Right. And um, the other ones were in 58. But, um, you know, looking back on it, so I was proud of it, and I was very fortunate to be able to do that. Well, it was, it's quite an accomplishment uh, to, to, for anyone to do that. And... Uh, Kalamazoo is, is, is still here. What, what would you say to someone who's looking at doing what you did 
going to those three, four majors now, any advice? How has it changed? Would you would you coach them any way in any way differently right now? Well, I just I think the game has changed. Um, we had well, more of a serve and volley, like um, where the kids today aren't doing that. Um, right. But I, you know, I think it's all all part of the of the preparation. If you've gotten to the point where you're playing um, the the junior events of the of those Grand Slams. Um, you're obviously on a path uh, to become a pro tennis player. Right. Um, and I'm sure a lot of them are, are probably also got into the main draw. Yep. And on that path to, to, to becoming a pro tour uh, player, you turned pro in 1961 when the pro tour was really just a bunch of, you know, guys um, uh, going around trying to make a tour happen. And you won the U.S. Pro Championships. And I, and I have to explain to our listeners, the U.S. Pro Championships were not what the U.S. Open is today. It was down in the no. Greenbrier. It was, it was at Forest Hills at one time. But you won, you won uh, the U.S. Pro Championships that year against Pancho Segura, three straight sets. What made you – what was behind your decision to turn pro and join that, what they kind of sometimes say is a motley crew of pro tennis players? What was your motive? Well, I, I... – my feeling was that open tennis was just around the corner. If I, I might have the, the, um, the votes of this incorrect, but I think in 60, 1960, the open tennis missed for some like five votes in 61. Uh, we were actually in Russia at the time and heard that the open tennis uh, was voted on, which it turned out not to be the case. And I think that missed by three votes. So when I made a decision to turn pro, I, I knew that the history of the amateur coming in and making the pro move, he was um, basically just getting beaten all the time. So my thought was, I'm going to go turn pro, take my licks, and by the time I'm in my 20s, or 22, 23, I will have taken my licks, gone through the, the, the hopefully the maturing process of being able to be competitive uh, when open tennis came, well, I, I missed it by eight years. Um, <laughs> it, it, it didn't happen. And, you know, if, if I had to do it all over again, I probably, if, if I knew then it was going to take eight years, I wouldn't have turned pro on the other hand, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm proud of my time as, as a pro because we worked really hard to try to get open tennis. And Jack Kramer, you know, basically had a strategy that um, he would go and sign the top player from, from each country. He did Mike Davies from, from Great Britain, uh, Andre Semeno from Spain, and Barry McKay and I from the United States, uh, Louis Ayala from, from Chile. And um, each year he would take uh, the Wimbledon champion, which most of the time was, was uh, an Australian, so he would take... Um, Ken Rosewall, Lou Ho, mm -hmm. um, but so um, it was a great learning experience. It, it was not easy. Um, you know, we we're playing one night stands and and traveling the next day. Not and particularly when in Europe, you, you know, you get on the court until nine o'clock at night, and then you'd finish at midnight or later. Try to find way to eat, and then the next day you're off to someplace. I think I, I played something like 29 matches in 31 days and slept in 30 different beds. Um, that was all through Europe. 
Those are, you know, I, I've read the book, The Handful of Summers by Gordon Forbes, and I think he's a friend of yours. Um, Great guy. Just, it just yeah. passed away. Did he? Well, he, he, his book is fantastic. I, I, I've read that book two or three times, and, and he talks about exactly what you are talking about, you know, going and playing at nine o'clock, getting, uh, getting up the next morning, traveling to the next city between France and Spain and, and Britain. And, and, but he looks back with a melancholy feel to those days. And he, I think he feels that something's missing in today's tennis. Take us back to those days. Do, do you miss those days? And how do you think tennis stacks up today for the pros? Uh, well, <laughs> the big difference today is that, um, we were on, on going on buses and trains and the kids today are on G fives. So, um, that's, uh, no, I mean, it, it was, it was an experience and it, that's what was, that was pro tennis at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, today, you know, they don't have, they don't have that. Um, right. they're playing tournaments, which is, which is really what we wanted to do as pros. Uh, and we started that in 1964. We stopped doing the, the one night stands and we started building uh, events and we literally got to the point. We probably had 20, 25 professional tournaments. We had 16 guys that, that uh, um, if they didn't have that would probably go home and get pro jobs at some club. But we, we, uh, we had a mission and a passion for trying to bring open tennis. And, and uh, I can say I'm, I'm very proud to be part of that group that, actually finally made it happen. Well, you, you've been a major part of that group. And, 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 and that brings me on to my next question. And, and giving back to the professionals on tour, after your time on tour, you've been the executive director of the ATP and commissioner of World Team Tennis. But you built one of the major events. Uh, they call it now the fifth major. But back in the day when you started, it was the Lipton International Players Championship. And, and looking back at some of the history, I did not realize it started in Delray. And, and you were single-handedly, uh, you know, responsible for this, for this tournament. Take us back to those days in Delray. Well, just the background for it is I, when I was the head of the ATP, I believed that the players were the last entity to have a major event. So I went to the board. I, I, I actually resigned from the ATP and, and had um, gotten two weeks on the calendar uh, when I was in that job. And um went to the board and said, uh, I'd like to um, take those two weeks and I will do a combined event, uh, which I had to get the ATP and the WTA to agree to, build the stadium and put up, uh, put up the prize money. And um, the board said, go ahead. <laughs> if you can do that, go ahead. <laughs> so we had some bumps along the way, Delray, um, uh, the, uh, the developer there um, unfortunately went under. Uh, so we then moved to uh, an Arvida property uh, in Boca at Boca West. And we were going to okay. move to, um, to Weston, which was another Arvida property. And that was going to happen in 87, but the property wasn't ready for us. So we had to move, um, find another location. So we ended up going to Key Biscayne, which was which was terrific. Great location, had a great feel for going over the bridge and going to the tropics and water, and you could see the the skyline when you were coming back from the tournament. So it it had just you know the the, the right kind of feeling uh, which I was looking for. Unfortunately, 
uh, we ended up with all sorts of legal issues and, and um, people on the key fought the, the concept of a stadium. They thought we were going to have rock concerts and tractor pulls and mud wrestling and all that, <laughs> which we said we, we weren't going to do, but, and we never did. Uh, but eventually we, we got it done and built a, uh, a stadium that the, I think that the players and everybody were very, very proud of. It was not easy because we had three different sites the first three years, and that didn't play very well in the locker room. Um, but we finally got it done. And, and I, I, think, I think the players, I remember Steffi Graf saying, you know, she plays in a lot of stadiums, and this is one of the best stadiums in the world. So we were proud of that. And I was, I was lucky that I got to be able to literally design it because I'd had it in my head for so long of what it was going to look like. And I um, uh, was lucky that, that uh, the county – would let me go ahead and build it uh, the way I wanted to build it. Felt that the players were the players were the ones that that deserved to have that that it's, it's exactly like what what the PGA did with the players' championships, you know, here in in uh, in Ponte Vedra. That's you know, I sort of copied that, but I, that's what we wanted to do back, you know, in the mid '60s when we were, you know, on the trains and on the buses and the station wagons talking about pro tennis will be like or what open tennis would be like in the future. And I wanted to make sure that the players had a, an event that was theirs. Um, politics changed in, in 1990 and uh, the ATP and the tournaments became partners. And that was a conflict for ATP. So they said, Butch, if you want to buy this thing, or if you want to um, take it over, um, here's what you're going to have to do. And um, we complied with that. Uh, it was kind of difficult because they raised the prize money by 40%. And, um, but anyway, we, we, got it, we got it done. And um, uh, my brother and I ended up owning the tournament. The Lipton is a spe- special memory. I, I've actually was an ATP umpire and worked the Lipton several years. It's a beautiful stadium. You're right. It's one of the greatest memories of my time on that court is watching the Capriottis and the graphs and talking about that. It's one of the few stops on both the men's and the women's tour where the men and the women are together. And that's quite a challenge, isn't it? We were the first to do that. And again, you know, uh, the tennis politics and particularly the ATP really pushed me hard to break up the concept of the men and women playing together and say, you no, know, the women should play one week and men should play another week. And I said, no, that's, that's not what the public want. It took a while, Ed, but if you go back and look now at the Master Series, I would say all are now combined events with maybe with the exception of, of Bercy and the, the French Indoor and mm-hmm. Shanghai. Uh, I think everything, well, and, and, and Monte Carlo, but all the other ones, uh, Indian Wells, um, the Italian, the, the, the event in, in Madrid, they're, yep. they're all now combined events. And that's what I believe the public want to see. They want to see, they want to see Martina playing against Chrissy and they want to see Sampras playing against Agassi. And as it turns out, that's, that's the formula that um, obviously worked for the Grand Slams and is now working for the Master Series. I'd like to welcome our first sponsor here at BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast, and that's Play by Court, PlayByCourt.com. Choosing the right technology partner is not an easy task. However, staying with the same outdated provider 
can be a costly decision. And with today's fast-changing environment, well, you need a partner that will help you adapt to the ever-growing needs of your members. At Play by Court, well, they provide the best technology solution customized for your club. With their app, your members can easily manage their profile. They, they can book courts, programs, lessons. They can pay. I asked Andre, show me the payment solutions. It's fantastic. And your members can communicate directly with members and you, the staff. So please go have a look at playbycourt.com and see what really matters most to your members. Your club, your rules, your software. Playbycourt.com. Well, I think you're ahead of your time. You've always been ahead of your time. And Butch, that, that thought process of, of bringing what you gentlemen thought about in the 60s and making it happen in the Lipton era in the 80s is, is quite a feat. And I think I have, one thing that's very, it's really interesting is to how it actually happened. Wimbledon in 1967 um, invited eight of us to play uh, a pro event at Wimbledon in August of 67. And the chairman at the time was a gentleman by the name of Herman David. And he told us before the tournament that if you guys fill this center court, I don't care what the ITF says, you're invited to come back and play here next year as pros. Well, it was a huge success. And um, he said, you know, you guys are all invited back. In those days, you were... You got into Wimbledon by invitation and they didn't have a computer. They didn't have rankings and stuff like that. So we were all got invited to come back and play. And uh, that was once Wimbledon announced that, then everybody, all the other tournaments, the grand slams all sort of fell in line. And we now have, that was the beginning of what we have now, which is spectacular. And I can honestly say I'm, 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 I'm so happy to see that I sport, um, has reached the heights that it's reached. I, I still think there are things that can be done that would make it even better, but you know, that's another, that's another subject. We can, I could ask you that. What, what give us, what give us an example of what you think might, might be better in the future. Well, I, I, I think the major entities in tennis ought to be under one roof. It doesn't mean that you're going to lose your um, identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think ATP and WTA, there's lots of things that they could do together and with which they're now playing tournaments together that would, um, help, help the sport. Um, you know, you've got the ITF on one side, you've got the four, they got the grand slams, you've got ATP, you got WTA and, and the, the industry should be competing in the sports entertainment business. And I think they would do a better job if they were under one roof. That doesn't mean, again, that they would lose their identity. But to walk down the hall and talk to uh, the French, could talk to the ATP and WTA and say, I, I'm, I'm thinking of moving my date to such and such. How do you guys feel about that? At least have a discussion about it as opposed to just going and doing it and then get an uproar and then have to change it. So those are, you know, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. And, uh, but I think that if, if they were working more closely together, it would, would help the, help the sport. Great point. I, I, you know, we've, we've brought that up on this podcast before. There's so many uh, organizations, including, you know, and the other side of tennis, not the pro side, but the USTA, the USPTA, the PTR. Right. And, yep. and it's, a, it's a current 
and constant theme that it should be unified. And I think that's perhaps where golf is a little bit ahead of us. Um, as you said, they were ahead of us, you know, doing a player's championship. And uh, we should probably take a cue from them sometimes on, on solidifying and unifying our sport a little bit more. Well, they, they also have, have a, a, a really good governance. They have business people that are part of the, of the board. And it's not just the players that are making the decision. It's it, you, the, the, the players and a business group collectively make a decision for the sport. And I, I, think, I think both ATP and WTA would benefit by having some major business leaders be a part of their, uh, their, their, their decision-making process. Right now, it's, it's just the, the, the locker rooms. And right. they, they don't always make the, the best business decisions. question about the handsome eight was, was it the handsome eight that played at wimbledon that year or were the handsome eight a a, a different group no the no the, the 67 the handsome eight the handsome eight did not exist it, it that started okay. 1968 so we we did play at wimbledon and i think everybody on our group definitely you know played um which is a good trivia question of who they were <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you're one of them, and I just wanted to know if it was those, it was those eight at, at Wimbledon '67, but it wasn't. It was it was in '68 that they played at Wimbledon. Right. Okay. And that, then we still, and then then we still had, and still we had WCT, which which they did a great job in in um, going about. They 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 had an office. They had a they had a a person that was running it, and Mike Davies. He had Lamar Hunt who owned it, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and his nephew, Al Hill Jr., who was a tennis player. Um, so we had, it was, it was uh, very well run and thought out um, uh, business. Unfortunately, again, the politics and the calendar um, just you know, caused it to basically disappear. Well, in those days, I mean, there's Forest Hills, there's Wimbledon, there's Kalamazoo, there's, you know, you've played obviously all over the world. Where's your favorite place to play? Is it your home club? Uh, no, I mean, um, uh, we built 10 indoor courts in St. Louis when I, when I uh, left the tour. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I honestly, I mean, Wimbledon, is it's just such a great great place. I I've had a bad elbow for a long time, and mm-hmm. I have not played tennis in three years. My last time I hit a tennis ball was on the center court at Wimbledon three years ago after the tournament with um, Phil Brook, who was then the chairman of Wimbledon. So I'm I, I'm going to leave my that's probably going to be my last memory of hitting tennis balls. It's in the center court at Wimbledon. A, 
a 10 court facility. And I found this quote in doing a little research. It resonated with me as a director of tennis, and, and I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of directors of tennis who listen in on the podcast. And I'll read it. In 1971, I knew my playing days were over. I was 29 years old, scared and confused. I didn't know what I was going to do, so I went back to St. Louis. I knew I wanted to stay in tennis, you say. So I built a 10-court indoor club called Town and Tennis. I worked all day and night doing whatever needed to be done, just trying to learn. At that stage, if someone would have asked me what cash flow was, I would have told them it was probably when money fell out of someone's wallet and flowed down a river. And I just love that quote because there are so many tennis pros, both playing and instructors, who come to an end of a career or a start of a new career and are scared and don't understand what cash flow is. And I, I, I just wanted to ask you how you felt at that time and how you learned out of that moment back in St. Louis and where you've come from there. And it, it's um, there's a little bit of a story behind that. Um, Billy Calvert, who was our junior Davis cup captain and um, you know, was one of the top uh, male tennis players in the forties and, and even in the fifties. Um, and he was in business, never turned pro, um, and sort of took guys like Tony Traber, Chuck McKinley, myself sort of under his arm and, and, and helped us. And he always used to say to me, junior, be aware, be aware of your surroundings and you're on an airplane and you're sitting to somebody, you know, find out what they do. And so I remember that when I left the tour and I remember playing a charity event in Providence, Rhode Island and met the chairman and CEO of a company called Textron in the early seventies, indoor tennis was just beginning to boom. And Textron had a metal building division and that's what indoor tennis clubs were made up metal buildings. So I went to them right. and said, um, I'm off the tour and I'd like to be a part of this new industry. And you guys have, metal buildings and what do you think of let's try one in St. Louis and if it works and we can, you know, build, build some throughout the country and you'll be able to sell a lot of metal buildings. Well, we, we, they said, okay, we'll try it. And, um, it was interesting. They, they sold the, the company, um, even before we finished the, 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 the building. And so they said, but, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to continue with this. Do you want to buy it? And, um, you know, I had you know, really not, not the financial wherewithal to do it. Um, but I had met um, a gentleman when we built the building who came and said, but I want to, I want to take a lesson and I want to do it three days a week and I will not cancel. Um, and the gentleman, this guy was named Solon Gershman. He had a lot of real estate. He had banks and really good guy. And so I said, I'll make a deal with you. I will do the tennis lessons, but you have to spend a half an hour with me when we, when we finished the lesson and teach me business. <laughs> um, I did that for three years and I've got uh, a firsthand business education from from a guy that was very very successful and we and became very good friends even after uh i left the 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 um the business actually i sold it i actually had it for 17 years but i'd left wow. and went to uh do the 
uh, Commission of World Team Tennis and then the ATP. But um, great guy, great um, great person, and he was so helpful to me. And because uh, I mean, I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. Uh, had a wife and three kids, and I bought this big house, and um, uh, it's uh, a special time. For, for, for me, I learned a lot. I, you know, I cooked hamburgers, I cleaned toilets, I gave tennis lessons, um, and it's it's pretty good training to get off the tour and start cleaning toilets. But it was worth it. You're known around the tour and, and in, t in the world of tennis as one of the nicest guys. I mean, Marshall Happer, in his new book, Pioneers of the Game, raves about you and says, you're the nicest guy in the business. And you, you've proven that in that you, 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 you've, you've started and, and you had a movement to start a pension fund for the pro players. And, and take us through that. And how did that come about? And how did you make that work? You know, when I left, you know, as I said, I had a wife, three children, and, and this big house, and no pension plan. And all the other sports had pension plans. So I went to our attorney, uh, a guy named Dick Berovic in New York, and said, Dick, I want to see if we can't find uh, a way to do a pension uh, for tennis players. And we had a complication because we were individual uh, contractors. We weren't, we weren't, we're sort of a union, but not a, not a union. We're still, uh, independent contractors. Right. So he went down to Washington, uh, DC met with the IRS and they figured out a way to, uh, make it happen. And, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that, that, um, we, we did that, uh, got it through. And then, we turned it over to the men's pro council, turned it over to Marshall. And then he, he, he managed it until, um, the, the tour, uh, took over in, in 1990. But today, I mean, it's, it's great. It's, it's a great thing. Tennis players have a pension now. And I, I was proud that we got that started and got it done. That's, that's fantastic. Uh I, I understand that uh, you were instrumental in keeping the, the Orange Bowl in Florida. Um, my daughter's 11. I think the Orange Bowl may be in her future, and I'm thankful for you for keeping it here. How, how did it get, come under fire, and how did you keep it? Well, it, it, it was at the Flamingo Park in Miami Beach for many, many years, and they lost their sponsor. And um, I was on the Orange Bowl committee at the time, and we had a sponsor actually said that they would, they would have some interest in it. And, um, it was, uh, the watch company from Switzerland, um, and who replaced the other watch company. Uh, and we had just, we had just moved, we had just moved to the new site. So we actually moved the, the orange bowl tournament and, and, and a new sponsor to, to the keep this game site. Yeah, that's one of the big events. I mean, in Florida, the juniors have, you know, so, so many big events, but the Orange Bowl. But and it's, 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 it's probably the biggest, it used to be the biggest junior event in the world. Because you had players the, from all over the world that, that came there. 
I still think it is. I still think it is. I mean, it's one of the biggest. So, Butch, going looking at, 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 at the Pro Tour today, and, you know, we have the Australian Open going on right now. Um, and in these odd times, I, I heard last night they had to evacuate the, the stadium because of COVID protocols at a certain time. And Djokovic had to continue trying to win in a fifth set after, uh, after uh, an evacuation. But how do you see the Pro Tour coming back after COVID? And, and do you think there'll be any changes with the Pro Tour after COVID? Obviously, we need to get our fans back and, and the sponsors need to be able to to do the corporate entertaining that really, you know, helps pay for all, all the, uh, the events. So it, right. it's, it's critical. Uh, I mean, I, you got to say many, many thanks to the sponsors that stayed uh, without being able to have uh, the assets that, that uh, uh, are available to them to, to entertain their, their, their guests. So it, it's, um, I think everybody's anxious to get this thing over with so we can get back to as close to normal as possible. You, you, you make a great I, point I don't think there. That... Gonna be, I don't think there'd be any, I, I think everyone will be just so excited to get people and fans back and sponsors back and, and, and going about their business. Yep. You make a great point about uh, the corporate sponsorship. And, and I know that the Lipton moved into the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ, uh, through Wick Simmons helped to sponsor that that tournament, maintain its financial uh, foundation. You're uh, a player that understands the financial and, and the cash flow need for, for, for events and for tournaments. Why did you approach NASDAQ or how did you approach other sponsors and say, hey, I can make this work? What, what was your motivation in well, going to a certain we, sponsor? We, we had actually, after Lipton, we had Ericsson. Um, That's right, the, the Sony Ericsson. Yeah, and and Sony Ericsson, well, actually, it was Ericsson before Sony Sony Ericsson. Yep. Um, yep. And Ericsson um, was my primary sponsor for the seven events that we had in Latin America. I I had a partner, uh, Joaquin Blaya, uh, who was uh, from Chile, and he was the CEO of and one of the founders of. Um, Univision and, and and worked at Telemundo and obviously was very familiar with uh, with Latin America. And at the time, we, I think, had one player in the top 100 from Latin America. And I think that was Guga. Uh, with the luck of, of, of knowing Joaquin, and he'd left his position at, at Telemundo as the chairman, and um, we, we formed a partnership, and he knew the guy that was running Ericsson for Latin America. And long story short, we had a meeting with him and in 24 hours we had a sponsorship and um, we, we actually had seven events in Latin America for five years. And what came out of that, Ed, was that the kids in Latin America couldn't get into tournaments um, because they didn't have enough points. So we, we put the challengers, uh, the prize money up to 100,000 which gave the, the players more points. So out of those events, they, they were able to accumulate enough points to be able to travel to Europe and around the world and get into tournaments. I think at one stage, we had something like 15 kids from Latin America in the top 100. I don't know what we have now, but um, that... that um, and then we, had, we owned the tournament in Buenos Aires for, oh, probably 20 years. Um, you know, another thing that proud of that uh, 
we brought professional tennis back to Latin America. That's a fantastic story. And, and then you went on to NASDAQ, right? NASDAQ took over after. Then we, went to Na- then, we went to, then we went to NASDAQ. I, you know, we sold the tournament to IMG in 2000. And contractually, I had to stay five years. Um, and during that time, that's when um, uh, we had Ericsson. And then Ericsson, you know, we're, we're going to come out with this the mobile phone. And apparently that got delayed or whatever. So it, to, the reason they got into tennis was because of that. And then they think they either dropped it or I'm not sure what happened with the, the business plan. But the tennis tournament didn't fit anymore. Wick was then the head of NASDAQ. And, and actually, Wick had a, a vision that he would sit in the stands and look out at all the sponsorship, and it would be all NASDAQ companies, So, um, <laughs> which, was, which was great. So we did the deal, and, and actually, my five years were up with, with IMG, and Wick apparently told the IMG guys that if Butch leaves, um, uh, we're not going to do this. So I stayed on for the four years that NASDAQ and Wick retired, I think maybe a year after, um, after the sponsorship, but I ended up staying 11 years after we sold it and thought, you know, (laughs) they've had, they've had enough of me and maybe a year, maybe not even a year. I get a phone call from the PGA tour and I'm looking at them and saying, why is the PGA tour calling a tennis guy? And then I remembered I was a member of PPC, the Players Club here. I said, you know, I bet I haven't paid my bill. They're probably <laughs> trying to. I said, no, Butch, we'd like for you to join our team uh, at Doral. And I ended up being the chairman of the Cadillac World Golf Championships. And I did that for four years until we lost that event in, in, uh, at, at Doral and it went to Mexico. I remember when it went to Mexico. Butch, your history is amazing because you go f- you go from being a an amateur player to becoming a pro to becoming one of the leaders of the ATP Tour, and then you know going on to the golf PGA Tour. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and and, and thank you so much for your time and, and, and all your efforts on. Well, I've been very very fortunate to have great friends and a very supportive family, and um, you know it's it, it's it's been. Um, uh, a lot of fun and doing different things and, and um, trying to be as creative as I can. Right now, I'm just working on my golf game and trying to make sure that I can shoot my age or, or under my age. I had a 79 <laughs> yesterday. so That's a fantastic goal. Where, do you play golf there in Ponte Vedra? I play, I live in a place called The Plantation and it has a great golf course and I belong to a great, great club called Pablo Creek. And uh, it's, it's, um, special golf place well thank you for your time and i hope your golf swing improves and and you keep that score under your age thanks butch okay thanks enjoyed it it was fun thank you so much for listening this week we really appreciate it i just want to let everyone know that our introductory music is by ed shanifee senior and his amazing trio and all the chapter breaks is original music by my daughter olivia shanifee We hope to hear more from them as we continue this podcast through 2021, and we hope to see more of you as well. Thanks for listening.
you for listening to BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. It's a pleasure bringing you each week's news and views and great guests from our tennis, fitness, and country club industries. You can always reach the team here at BeyondTheBaselines at gmail.com or on the phone at 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website at www.BeyondTheBaselines.com, which is updated regularly with even more information for you, your club, or your facility. See you again soon.